Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Do you reckon if teenagers and people in their 20s were advising politicians in Australia that we'd have better policies, there'd be more attention on younger people? Because the government's announced that it's now got some youth advisors. It was a promise before the election. These young people are going to consult on all kinds of things like climate change, mental health. It sounds good, but do you think this is going to make much of a difference, that politicians are going to listen? Or maybe you're sceptical. You reckon this is more about looking like they're listening. In a bit, we're going to get into this announcement, talk to some of these advisors. You're going to hear from the youth minister too. Also, did you hear the news that they've found water in glass beads on the moon? (laughs) How does that work? That's coming up later. First, though. We are here for the democracy. BP is not here for the democracy. On Triple J. Yeah, it's kind of hard to understand the full scale of protests that have been playing out in Israel over the past few weeks. Hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets, striking, demanding the government scrap plans for a big shake-up of laws that would have given more power to politicians to do things like choose judges for courts. It's been a big issue. This is one of the Israeli protesters speaking a few hours ago. The Israeli people are setting an example for the entire world. What a nation needs to do when an autocrat tries to change the system of government from a democracy to autocracy. Now, he was talking about Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister. He's Israel's longest serving PM, also leads the most right wing and religiously conservative government in the country's history. Now heaps of Israelis are calling for him to stand down. So what's going on with these protests? Kimberly Price has more. That is the sound of around half a million people taking to the streets of Israel to protest their government. These protests have been going on for about 11 weeks since Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced a controversial policy to overhaul Israel's legal system. The protests got more intense recently after Defence Minister Yuav Gallant was sacked after he spoke out against the policy. Many Israelis say Benjamin Netanyahu is acting like a dictator. He is trying to reduce the power of the courts to overrule the parliament, which is also known as the Knesset. The country doesn't have a constitution, but Israel does have a Supreme Court, which can review and strike down laws, just like the US Supreme Court. And this new policy would limit that court's power. Today, we need a national revision. Instead of inaction, we will promote an action-rich policy, a firm policy, a responsible policy, a national policy. We will introduce reforms that will ensure the right balance between the three authorities. Among other changes, Prime Minister Netanyahu says the policy would allow the Knesset to decide some laws wouldn't be reviewed by the courts. They could also bring back old laws that had previously been overturned. The proposed law would also mean courts would need 12 out of 15 judges to overturn laws. The political leaders would have the power to appoint Supreme Court judges and it would be tougher for the courts to remove the Prime Minister. The current political leaders say these changes give more power to the elected Knesset, aka themselves, and argue these changes to the governing body are democratic. But many protesters argue the changes will lead to civil war. 
That's the chanting of shame from members of the Knesset who are against the policy. Due to the widespread protests, Prime Minister Netanyahu overnight announced a delay in his overhaul. Out of the desire to prevent a rift in the nation, I decided to suspend the second and third reading of the law in this session of the Knesset to give time to try and reach a broad agreement. The Israeli media have reported that Netanyahu could be willing to cut a deal, but would need to sway the far-right members of the Knesset, which could bring down the government if their demands are not met. Members of the Knesset say there needs to be a decision on the legislation before the Knesset breaks up for the Passover holiday on April 2nd. Hack on Triple J. Kimberly Price with that update. I want to get into this a bit more. And with me, I've got Anthony Lowenstein, an independent journalist, filmmaker, based in Australia now, but lived in East Jerusalem for years and has a book coming out soon called The Palestine Laboratory. Anthony, thanks so much for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me. These protests have been extraordinary, right? Like hundreds of thousands of people taking to the streets. As someone who has lived in Israel, how significant is this? Look, the biggest protest in Israel's history, Israel's obviously existed since 1948. There's never been protests this big. There have been big protests in the past over various other issues. Nothing this big. Um, They are unprecedented. There's been hundreds of thousands of people protesting for months Pretty much since Netanyahu, the long-standing Israeli Prime Minister, came back to office late last year in 2022, and he came with the far-right coalition. He was attempting to push through some pretty extreme judicial changes, essentially trying to neuter the country's Supreme Court. A lot of people were upset about it, so huge numbers of people came into the streets to protest, and it seems in the last 24 hours that Netanyahu, at least for now, has withdrawn that or at least put it on a pause, which is significant. But I would say, and we can get to this in a minute, I think it's actually often missing the bigger picture here, which is that the issues actually are far bigger than simply these proposed reforms. So with Benjamin Netanyahu deciding to shelve these plans, do you think that that's going to be enough to satisfy people? No, it's the short answer. Look, one of the things I think that's really often ignored in much of the media coverage of this issue is, yes, you have huge number of principally Israeli Jews protesting in the streets in Tel Aviv and other places around Israel. What you don't have and have not had are huge numbers of Palestinians. In fact, Palestinians have been mostly absent from these protests. Obviously, anyone in the West Bank and Gaza can't get there because they're under occupation by Israel. And within Israel itself, very few Palestinians have been protesting. And in fact, there have been very few Israeli Jews who have been supporting Palestinians. The reason that's important is that many people argue, including myself, you cannot be a democracy, a Jewish democracy or any democracy, if you occupy millions of Palestinians, which is what Israel's been doing for over half a century. So yes, these protests have been important. And yes, there's a small minority of Israeli Jews who have been coming out to say, We can't have true democracy here, Israel, unless we also have democracy and the occupation ends. And that, sadly, is not a message that most Israeli Jews want to hear. I wanted to ask who was 
in the protest group? Because it does sound like there were people from all kinds of backgrounds, as we heard, hundreds of thousands of people. This was a significant proportion of Israel's population. What kind of people are we talking about? Obviously, a lot of young people. For sure. Look, it's been the diverse number of people in the past when these kinds of protests have happened, usually over a particular war or a conflict in Gaza or Lebanon, it's been mostly people on the left. I'm generalising, but mostly. These protests have been on the left as well, but also people from different backgrounds, the corporate world, the high-tech world, the IT world, growing numbers of people in the Israeli military coming out and saying these proposed changes are simply unacceptable. So that clearly is important. But it's also key to remember, if you speak to virtually any Palestinian, which I've been doing, and you can see this in the Arab and Middle East press, what they're saying is often, sure, we're happy that Israeli Jews are going out and protesting for their democracy. But how about the fact that there are millions and millions of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza who don't have democracy, who are living under Israeli military rule for decades? How about their democracy? And you see in Israel itself, huge numbers of Israeli Jews waving the Israeli flag, the Star of David. When you've had, even in the last 24 hours, a handful of Israeli Jews waving the Palestinian flag, Israeli border police have ripped that from their hands as if somehow waving a Palestinian flag is treasonous. That sadly is the mentality of many of the Israeli Jewish protesters, which I think shows that unless there's been some real shift in the coming weeks and months, what will happen in the end is not some radical shift in Israeli society as much as probably these judicial changes either coming through in a different form or some kind of alteration, but ultimately no real shift in what's happening in the West Bank or Gaza. I mean, do you think that these protests are shining a light on those bigger issues in terms of the conflict with Palestinians? is Do you think that that's what's happening or it's the opposite, that it's all being overshadowed? I think for some people it definitely is. And I think what you're seeing at the moment is a growing realisation in many countries around the world that what Israel under Netanyahu and his far-right coalition are trying to do is move away from what I would call a mutated um, democracy anyway, to something that they admire, something like Hungary or Poland, which is nominally democracies in Europe, but over years and years, the ruling party there has chipped away and chipped away and chipped away at um, checks and balances, at the courts, at the media, etc. That's essentially, I think, where Israel has been going for years anyway. And in fact, one of the things that many Israeli Jewish friends of mine are saying now in the last few months is maybe finally growing numbers of peoples around the world will realise that in fact what's been happening here for decades has not just not been democracy, but now you have in the Israeli cabinet with Netanyahu, people like Itamar Ben-Gavir, who's a far-right fascist, I mean he would openly admit that himself, who actually believes in ethnic cleansing, he actually advocates the removal of Palestinians. That's not my word. That's actually what he advocates. He's in the Knesset. He actually is in the Israeli cabinet right now. And the trade-off that Netanyahu brought to end or pause the judicial changes are basically giving him a private militia, that's the words that's been used, to police either Israeli critics or Palestinians. And one final point on this, you know, so much of the media, David, in the in the West has been Israel's Supreme Court is under jeopardy if these changes go through. Again, 
For decades, the Israeli Supreme Court has been rubber stamping the occupation with a few very exceptions. So if you speak to the millions of Palestinians, they'll say, okay, the Supreme Court, which essentially has ruled time and time and time again to oppress us, now Israeli Jews are worried about their rights because it might impact them as Jews. And as someone who is Jewish myself and living in Sydney and having spent years based in the Middle East, both in Israel and Palestine, it seems to me really rich for a lot of people to be now worried about the threats to his so-called Israeli Jewish democracy while ignoring the bigger picture, which is at the expense of whom? Of millions of Palestinians who have not had democracy for decades because of Israeli policies. Look, well, it's definitely a story uh, that's developing every day. We appreciate your insight into this. Writer, journalist, Anthony Lowenstein, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. Hack. With an informed and passionate electorate, with fresh and progressive ideas, we could save politics. On Triple J. So just before the federal election last year, we spoke to Anthony Albanese, you might remember, and I asked him how he was going to re-win the confidence of young people if he was elected Prime Minister. This is what he had to say. We'll engage with young people directly. We'll create an office of youth affairs in the federal government. We'll create direct consultation with young people and their representatives on that board. So it's coming up to a year since the election and I've been wondering what's happening with that. Where are these youth advisors? Well, there's been some work going on and young Australians are going to have the opportunity to speak directly to ministers about issues like climate change, mental health, safety. But how much of a say will they have? Are the politicians going to actually listen? That's the big question. We're going to try and speak to the Youth Minister, Anne Lee soon. But first, here's Shalila Medora. She's been catching up with some of these youth advisors to find out what kinds of things they're hoping to get out of this experience and whether they're confident. Yeah, I'm really hoping that I can, or all of us in this group, can get a bit of a more direct line to politicians and government. Hey, my name's Bodie Waite. I'm 17. I'm currently on the Sunshine Coast and I'm just doing my year 12. Bodie has always been super passionate about stopping climate change. He thinks it's because of the big role the outdoors played in his upbringing. Being in the city for half of my life and then being in the country and then now I've moved to Queensland and nature is just a huge part of everything that people do up here um, and it's definitely yeah given me a bit of a drive to get involved. Bodhi wants to be part of the solution so he put his hand up to be in the government's new youth advisory group on climate change. His big push is for governments to move away from fossil fuel industries and put more education resources in clean energy industries. For me personally a climate jobs guarantee is one of my um, big ticket items that I'd really like to work towards. He hopes that governments will take young people's concerns on climate change seriously. Young people are definitely a lot more engaged in things like this Um, and I think it's because we have a very future focused kind of outlook. In 2018 I was uh, diagnosed with severe depression, anxiety and suicidal suicidal tendencies. So it uh, really changed uh, my outlook towards life. My name is Ipshita Pratap and I'm from Tasmania. I'm 24 years old. Ipshita is studying molecular biology at UTAS. And for the last few years, she's been part of an outreach team helping students with their mental health. We are acting as this checkpoints in our community. She's really passionate about educating people about mental health, especially multicultural communities. Once we 
get to educate people in a in an empathetic way that's how we can start breaking those barriers if she decided to apply for the youth advisory group on mental health because she thinks people with lived experience of mental ill health like herself have the most to say about policies and services at the end of the day, it's the experience that matters. Lived experience is really important to Aloysius too. Hi, my name is Aloysius Hayes and I am 19 years old and I work at youth program as a youth worker at Fink Apatula Community, which is south of Alice Spring to Alice Drive. He wanted to be part of the Youth Advisory Group on First Nations Policy so that the voices of people outside the major cities were represented. To speak to my experience of being a young Aboriginal person growing up in a remote community. Countering racism is a big thing for him. In Alice Springs, as a young Aboriginal person, we get stared at like we are up to no good, made to feel not welcome. Aloysius is going to push for more money to keep young people in community. Have some funding for like um, educations back in communities like a high school so they can stay back in communities and fundings for youth programs just keep the culture strong I guess. Hack on Triple J. Shalala Madora with that story. We're hoping to speak to the Youth Minister Anne Ali. She's caught up in Parliament. It happens sometimes. Get busy. Don't have enough time to rush to the studio. We'll see if we can get her later in the program. Someone's messaged in, says politicians already ignore top scientists. Why would they listen to teenagers? Hey, look, it's a question we will put to the Minister when we get a chance to have a chat with her. Hack. Finding water ice on the moon could be one of the most important discoveries of the space age. On Triple J. So when you think of the moon, what kind of landscape are you picturing? Dry, dusty, rocky terrain. Not very welcoming terrain, I must say. What if I told you, though, that the surface of the moon is actually covered in water? But the water's trapped in little glass beads. When I read this, I thought, no, this can't be true. What are you talking about, little glass beads? How did they end up on the moon? Well, let's find out. We've got an expert with us now. Dr. Sarah Webb is a cosmic detective, an astrophysicist at Swinburne University. She's with us now. Dr. Sarah, thanks for coming on Hack. Oh, thank you for having me. When I saw you were described as a cosmic detective, that really interested (laughs) me. What exactly is that? That means that I hunt for things in the universe that are rare and unusual and sometimes a little mysterious. So, you know, just a universal detective. Okay, it makes sense. Uh, Lives up to the name. So these (laughs) glass beads on the moon, were you surprised when you read about this research that had come out, um, you know, talking about their discovery? Yeah, yeah, I was because up until now, we know that there is water on the moon, but locked away in different areas and sometimes in the basin of craters at the the South Pole of the moon. But we hadn't seen anything quite like this from any of our lunar samples. And I think this is really interesting. It's something that we thought could be a possibility from from behavior that we predict might happen with highly charged particles and really hot molten particles, but we hadn't seen it happen. So it was very, very exciting. Okay. Interesting. So how much water, well, how did the water get in there and how do experts um, reckon it's trapped in these beads? 
So we think that there is an insane amount of water on the surface, but completely locked away. And for it to be locked away, what happens is the surface of the moon is continually bombarded with meteorites, with asteroids, little ones, big ones, constantly. Our poor moon gets a bit of a beating. And when this happens, they hit the moon with full force because there's not much atmosphere to help slow them down, unlike here in the Earth. And so what we see is when they hit the surface of the moon, it is hot and it is very, very, very energetic and we get these little molten uh, glass beads that form from the regolith. So that's step number one. And then step number two is that these beads are then irradiated with our solar radiation from our sun and a really unique chemical reaction happens where we can get that hydrogen and oxygen to form water within it. Interesting. So can we get the water out? Theoretically, yes. We think possibly Yes. Uh, It's the idea of if we just heat them up to hot enough and do some other fancy chemical reactions that we could, in theory, do on the surface of the moon, we could then precipitate it out and have that water to then either use as water or to separate into oxygen and hydrogen. Okay. What is useful about having water on the moon? Like, obviously, um, it's useful for surviving if people are up there, (laughs) but there's other uses, right? Yeah, absolutely. So water, we think of it as something that we need for our bodies. It helps us with our chemical reactions and obviously we need water to survive. But we can break down water further into that oxygen and that hydrogen, both incredibly important. Oxygen we need to, to breathe and you could generate oxygen in theory in situ on the moon. And then hydrogen we can use for different unique fuel sources. So all of it is really, really useful and really important. Just on another thing that I saw, Dr. Sarah, there was this discovery or this research that's been going on through the James Webb Telescope. Um, Researchers have been looking at exoplanets, so planets outside our solar system, and they've been finding out some pretty interesting stuff. What have they been finding? They've been finding so many interesting things. So one of the most recent discoveries was we found a planet that we think – might have either a water ocean or water atmosphere or both. We can't be sure, but the brand new breaking research that came out today was that we looked at a planet that we thought could possibly be similar to Earth. It's about the same size, looks pretty good, but then when we look at it, we see that it has no atmosphere, unfortunately. But this wouldn't be possible without the James Webb. Interesting. Well, that's like fascinating stuff. There's always um, new discoveries coming out thanks to this James Webb telescope. And we appreciate you giving us your analysis so we know exactly what it all means because it can be confusing. Dr. Sarah Webb, astrophysicist, appreciate all of your knowledge. Thanks very much for coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. Hack with an informed and passionate electorate with fresh and progressive ideas, we could save politics. On Triple J. Yeah, so we heard Shalala Madora's report a bit earlier about youth advisors that have been announced that will be speaking directly with ministers in the government. It was kind of a, a promise that we heard Anthony Albanese talk to us about before the election, that young people would have a direct, uh, you know, method of communication to ministers, people in power. Let's find out more about how this is all going to work. We've got Anne Ali with us, Australia's youth minister. Minister, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks so much, Dave. I note that I'm following a, uh, a an astrophysicist, so no pressure. No pressure. You've, you've, been a bit, you've been a bit busy this afternoon, always stuff happening in Parliament. Always. We heard a bit earlier uh, from some of the young Australians who are going to be in these youth advisory positions. There are 40. They're going to be in five groups. How were they selected? 
So uh, they was well. First of all, the the advisory groups themselves and the issues that they were covered were selected by our youth steering committee, which is made up of fifteen young people. So in consultation with them, we asked them what are the issues that matter to young people, and they gave us a range of issues. We then went to different departments and we said, if you had a youth advisory committee, what specific projects would you get them working on, and and you know what would you be able to offer them? Because that was a really important part of it that we don't just set up these advisory committees to um, just be there but to actually do some a substantive piece of work. Uh, we then uh, through um, the um, Australian Youth Affairs Coalition which is the peak body uh, put out expressions of interest and invited people to apply. We got uh, I think around 900, 900 applications for the, those, those um, five advisory groups and uh, I wasn't involved in the process of selecting them. It was a very independent process of selecting who would be on those groups and I'm really, really pleased with the composition of those groups. We have uh, young people from rural, regional, remote areas. We've got young people who have lived experience of mental health, lived experience of being carers. We've got such a, a great diverse group of young people and every every uh, advisory group has somebody represented from each state and territory. Okay, so when we say advising though, what does that actually mean? What will these young people be able to um, say? What, how much access are they going to have to people in charge, the ministers? Well, I can give you a concrete example of that. So, for example, the Mental Health and Suicide Prevention Youth Advisory Group is going to work with the National Mental Health Commission and they're going to be looking at how digital technologies, including social media, have an impact on young people's mental health and wellbeing. And they're going to work do that work to identify um, ways in which technology has positive or negative impacts and what we can be doing better to support young people um, in that space. That's one example. Uh, the Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics Youth Advisory Group members, they're going to be working actively with Questacon, the National Science and Technology Centre, and what they're actually going to be doing is working on the design of new experiences for Questacon to better engage and attract young people, but also looking at addressing barriers to participation and inspiration inspiring future generations in STEM. So there are real concrete things that they're working on. With some of those bigger issues though, what happens mm. if what the young people are saying goes against the government's plans? Like, is the government actually going to change its policy? Well, I don't. I, well, I think the important thing is that young people have a say and that we're listening to them. Obviously, not everything that, that, that um, uh, uh, the young people are going to say is going to be possible or accepted but that's not the important part of it the important part of it is that they're there they're at the table and they have a real voice at that table i mean they're uh, going to want to have some of their oh, <laughs> some of yeah, their that, thoughts implemented i would think because there would be skeptics out there who think oh well it's good for the government to point to this and say we are listening to young people but is it actually more about looking like you're listening well that dave that's the very reason why we went out to departments and asked them, what are you going to do with these advisory groups? And if a department came back and said, oh, look, you know, maybe we'll do this or that, uh, we, didn't, we didn't follow that up. We really wanted concrete projects that young people could work on um, and have their input on. Now, yeah, in, in any process, in any process when you have diverse 
diverse voices. Even amongst the young people themselves, there's going to be diversity in how they might approach something or in the solutions that they think might work. But that's the process, isn't it? And, and what a great opportunity and what a great learning experience for anyone, young or old, to be involved in a process of policy making where you negotiate, where you where you can put ideas forward, and when you come up with come up with a position that everyone can agree on. Minister, just quickly, you know, you represent young people as the minister mm. for youth. One of the biggest issues for young Australians is housing. The government is in a bit of a, a tight situation at the moment because you've got this plan, the Housing Australia Future Fund, that would help um, fund 30,000 social and affordable homes. But the Greens have got issues with it. They say this fund doesn't stack up. It's not going to provide enough funding. It doesn't offer any support for renters and they're threatening not to support it. Do you think the government needs to go back to the drawing board to come up with something that is going to support young people in housing stress? I think that every minute that we wait, then what what we're saying now, we know that that young people experience homelessness. When we don't know the exact numbers because there's, there are a lot of young people who are sleeping rough and they're not counted if they're couch surfing, for example. This is an ambitious housing reform agenda and uh, we want it to work. We want young people, we want women and children who are escaping family and domestic violence. We want people to have access mm. to affordable housing. Every minute that the Greens um, waver on this... Uh, is is a, a minute longer that we can't build the houses that are necessary right. well, we're gonna for have, vulnerable people. We're going to have to leave it there, Youth Minister Anne Ali. Thank you very much for joining us. We're out of time, unfortunately, but appreciate you coming on Hack. Thanks so much, Dave. Always great to be with you. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.